Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. I've said it here before that I'm a big admirer of people who get things done. Well, my guest today is someone who proudly claims she doesn't like to work. She thinks she's, you know, pretty lazy, and she would have been a good heiress. Well, Fran Lebowitz is not an heiress, but she is an icon and an institution of New York City and American culture. As you'll hear, she's whip-smart, funny, and full of opinions. Fran famously wrote for Andy Warhol's Interview magazine, and she is the author of two best-selling collections of essays, but hasn't written another book since the mid-1990s. Instead, she can be found talking. In documentaries, she's done two with Martin Scorsese and... The latest from 2021 is called Pretend It's a City, or on late-night television, or in her speaking tour across the United States and around the world. Few voices out there are as original and unapologetic as Fran Lebowitz's. She's a truth-teller and a real breath of fresh air. I was so delighted to have this chance to sit down and talk with her. I cannot tell you how pleased I am to talk with you today, Fran. And uh, thank I feel, you. I feel like I've got all of New York City, or at least Manhattan, right here in this uh, booth uh, with me. And I want to talk to you about your speaking tour, uh, your docu series, and of course New York City. And I was just asking you. You're heading to uh, Brooklyn for a live event. You've been to Brooklyn, right? Oh, yes, numerous times. <laughs> My grandparents lived in Brooklyn. So when I was young, um, that's where grandparents lived. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then I got older, and 
then it's, now it's where kids live, by which I mean people in their 20s. That's right. Um, and I always say to them, you know, when I was young, Brooklyn is a place where people, the people who live there, were all the time eating, talking about food, and watching TV, or talking about TV. <laughs> and now it's a place where people are eating all the time, talking about food, watching TV, except they're <laughs> 70 years younger, you know, and they're not my immigrant grandparents. I love that. Well, <laughs> Uh, you're going to King's Theater, which uh, you haven't been to before. I've been there for two events, and it's an extraordinary renovation. So um, I've seen photographs. It was a movie theater. It was a movie theater in the old days, uh, the very old days. Uh, but they've done an amazing job bringing it back, and they have live events like what you're going to be doing. You know, you have had one of the more interesting kind of one-of-a-kind careers that I uh, know of. And well, I, I would have to say I bow to you in that, Mrs. Well, <laughs> well, well, Maybe second. <laughs> well, I think we're, you know, we're kind of on parallel tracks then. Yeah, we're exactly you know? alike. Astro twins. part of it is you are a person of incredible gutsiness, and I admire gutsiness a lot. Yes, I could tell because you have it. you got to have it yeah. uh, in today's world. <laughs> and I just wanted the listeners to get a feeling for how you ended up in New York as a very young woman, as I recall, like, like 1920, very young. 1920. We're, no, I'm not you that were old. 1920. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I was. I was 19 or 20. Yeah. I. I actually can't remember because uh, I think. You know, I think I was 19. Yeah. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. so people who are not from around here say, "Oh, it's the same thing." It's no, not the same. It's thing. not the same planet. Yeah. It's, it would make no difference being from like Iowa. Or, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the, but I, I really had a very happy childhood. I know that's against the law, um, but it was really a nice town to be a child in. But at a fairly young age, we used to come to New York. I always said, "When I grow up, I'm going to live in New York." Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to always go. Like, they would at a certain age, they said, "Where do you want to go on your birthday? What do you want to do on your birthday? I want to go to New York." Uh, where do you want to go? The Museum of Modern Art. That's the place I always wanted to go. And I think that possibly, like at the age of 10 or 11, I imagine I would move to New York and live in the Museum of Modern Art. Mm. Uh, this has not happened. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, people say, well, how did you get to New York? I would say, bus. Bus. <laughs> okay? If your goal in life is to live in a certain place, you achieve your goal easily. Yeah. You know, people set the bar too high. My mm. goal was, I'm going to live in New York. I lived in New York. Yeah. And, I mean, you've driven cabs in New York. You've been a housekeeper. No, not then, a housekeeper. A cleaning lady. A cleaning lady. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, a phrase from my past. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, believe me, no one would hire me to keep a house. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you ended up in an incredible position of actually starting to be a writer. How, yeah, did, but, how did that go? I mean, you went from cab driving— being a cleaning lady, and all of a sudden you're meeting Andy Warhol and all oh, the No, no, rest. I was doing the same time because you, I didn't make enough money. Mm-hmm. No, I had those kind of jobs until my first book came out. You know? okay. So, I mean, I always had to have those kind of jobs. Um, uh, it wasn't that hard. You know, partially there were all these little magazines that we called underground newspapers. They weren't underground, you know, it wasn't Russia. And all you had to do is, like, ask. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't that hard because no one my age wanted to be a writer. That was the good thing. I had almost no competition. Everyone my age who wanted to be an artist um, wanted to be a filmmaker or a musician. Mm-hmm. Now, now everyone's a writer, mm-hmm. um, even without being able to write. And so it was not hard at all, you know, to get these jobs. And they paid nothing, so it was pretty easy. Yeah, You know, New York was... When people hear the rent I paid, then they go, "That you know, that's impossible." Okay, what was the rent you paid? Uh, that apartment, one hundred and twelve dollars and seventy eight cents a month. When I first moved in, mm-hmm. uh, like nine years later, whatever it was, seven years later, 
it had jumped to $121. On the other hand, the minimum wage was a dollar and a quarter an hour. Also, (laughs) it was an incredibly horrible apartment. No one would live in this now. The other thing is that people my age, you know, then, we didn't really care where we lived. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, we expected to live in horrible places, and we were just never home. It didn't matter. Yep. You know, I mean, it never occurred to me, why don't I have a nice apartment? Yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking about the house I lived in when I was in law school, which was in the early 70s. And, you know, the floors were all tilted, and the bathroom was so small, literally, it was, just, you know, as wide as a card table. And every time you tried to lift the toilet seat down or up, it would scrape against the bathtub. I mean, all of that. And I thought it was fine. Yeah, well, I thought it was fine. What, what I mean, else did I need? I knew there were nicer apartments <laughs> than mine, believe me. But when I, the, when I first moved in the super of that building, who I, that's the only time I ever saw him. The super came in the apartment with me, and I pointed out to him that there was no ceiling in the bathroom. Just the beams from this building, which was like a 19th century building, built actually as a sailor's rooming house. So there were no kitchens. Oh, um, and I said, look, there's no ceiling here. He said, yeah, I know I'm going to get to that. I moved out like eight years later. There was still no ceiling. So it turns out you actually do not need a ceiling in a bathroom. You do not. No. no. You can live without it. When did you publish your first book? Because it was a phenomenon. It was fantastic. In 1978. And how long did you work on it? Well, you know, it was really kind of a fluke what happened. I was writing this column for interview, which no one read. That was the Andy Warhol magazine. Right. Mm -hmm. And very few people read it. Mm -hmm. But it was available on newsstands in New York. And a woman who's since died named Laurie Colwin, who actually became a pretty well-known writer, was a little junior editor at Dutton, which doesn't exist anymore. And she was sick. She had a flu or something. And she said to her boyfriend, I have nothing to read. Go to the newsstand. Buy every magazine that I've never heard of. And he did. And she read this. And then she uh, read another one. And then she called me up and said, would you like to write a book? Oh, my God. (laughs) And I said, no. (laughs) <laughs> I said, no, I'm not ready to write a book. She said, well, I'm an editor at E.P. Dutton. Would you like to have lunch? Yes. Lunch. Food is great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that's how it happened. Really, no one had ever heard of me. I didn't know this, by the way, because the places I hung out in, everyone read an interview. So uh-huh. it was really a fluke. It was also a fluke. Then Lori got fired. And usually, like a little first book like that, they pay nothing for. The editor gets fired, the book goes away. But luckily... There was a man, Henry Robbins, also dead, who had just come to be the head of this publishing house, and he was a very important editor. I mean, a big deal in New York. And I was hanging around in his office. I didn't even know who he was. I was hanging around in his office because they had heat. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, so when she left, she said, Henry wants your book. And also another guy, lovely guy, and also Bill. And I said, well, I like Bill. I know him more. She said, don't be stupid. Henry's the head of the house. Yeah. So he became the editor. And then he did something that Lori never could have done. There was, like, a really, really um, important—there's no such thing anymore. The most important book critic in the country, John Leonard, for for the New York Times. And he did the Daily Reviews. And Henry could call John Leonard. And he said, I think there's a book you might like. And he took him to lunch. He gave him the book. That would never no. have happened with Lori. No. So it was very lucky for me that Lori got fired. Um, um, and then there was also another review in the Sunday Times the same week. And then there was no news. So because there was no news, more people paid attention to this. You know, people never talk about luck in this country. You know, luck is really probably the most determinative factor in anyone's life. I agree with that. You know, and no one talks about it. Everyone asks, like, 
in the United States, it all has to do with how hard you work, and that is just not, not true. true. Not okay? true. The most important luck you first have is where are you born? Exactly. Okay, who are your parents? Where are you born? What are their circumstances? Mm-hmm. And, and how healthy are you? Yes, and that is 90% of your life. You are kidding yourself, if you mm-hmm. think, because they show you these things. They do. They mm-hmm. say, look at this person born into total poverty, you know, with a 13-year-old mother, and, you know, she was not well, and, you know, yet he became this. Yeah, that's like really an anecdote. But basically, it's not true. Mm -hmm. You know, it just simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, I think, kind of destructive myth. Well, people beat themselves up all the time. Yeah, they look like, why can't I do that? They have failed in something or they're ashamed. Yeah, feel guilty. Or, Or they feel like, you know, why can't I do that? It's just like being old. Okay, they're always showing you a 97-year-old man who finished the marathon. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what they're showing. Here's this 97-year-old guy. He just ran the New York Marathon. He's in perfect condition. Yes, there is a guy like that. But the other 97-year-olds, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not in very good mm-hmm. shape. But I'd even go and say that when it comes to the outlier, the person who was born in terrible circumstances, if you really look at that person's life, Somebody provided a path forward. Somebody handed that person an opportunity. Something because something happened. The serendipity right. of of you having a an editor who's homesick reading your, uh, you know, your columns, and then all of a sudden everything takes off from there. Something happens, and that's luck. That's an, an intervening event. I think it's really a disservice to the country for someone not to say, you know, here's the truth. Yeah. You know, you should work hard. You could, you know, very often improve your life. And we could, as a society, do more to create the opportunities for improved. (laughs) Not just more, but in fact, maybe anything. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back right after this quick break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So what was Andy Warhol like? Well, you know, truthfully, I did not like Andy, and he did not like me. Mm. I know now everyone loves Andy, especially 
if you didn't know him, loving him is much easier, I think. I didn't get along with him. And I noticed most of the people around the factory, kids, they went there because they wanted to be around Andy. Mm. But I just went there because there was a magazine. Right. But I, I, I didn't like him. He didn't like me because I wouldn't talk to him. Mm. And, you know, I talk a lot. I didn't talk to him because he stole everything. I could see that right away, that he stole everything. Mm-hmm. The reason he had these kids around him mm-hmm. was maybe this kid would come up with this thing or, mm-hmm. you know. And so I had nothing else but that. Right. And I wasn't going to let it go away. Now, I mean, I have to say that after my second book came out, I still worked interview. And I only make money during Democratic presidencies, <laughs> which means I only make money when taxes are high. Um, and when my first book came out, Carter was president. Mm-hmm. And... The top income tax bracket, if you were single, this is another unfair thing. Why do single people pay more taxes than married people? They shouldn't. It's totally unfair. You might be able to do something about it. But however, um, I can't remember what it was. It was like $100,000 a year, um, 70%, 70%. Before that, I paid no taxes because I made $3,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was completely shocked. And so I thought money, which I always thought would be like helpful, turned out to be bad. So I said you know, to the editor of the interview— don't pay me. Money is terrible. <laughs> I will take it in art. So I had all these Warhols. Um, however, what also one one remembers about Andy um, is that before he died, his reputation was very, very low. Yes. And I needed money. I couldn't pay my uh, maintenance. And I sold all my Warhols, all two weeks before he died, for nothing. I mean, in order to, all I did was pay the maintenance of my apartment for one month, and I paid a lawyer, okay? One of the lawyers I paid with actually gave them the Warhols, I'm sure, like, you know, he lives in Tuscany now. Um, And I actually think that's, that's why he died. Because he knew I had sold him. <laughs> he knew right? he could screw you. <laughs> right. That's why he died. But the uh, the prices, I knew were going to go up. But yeah. I no one would ever imagine what they are now. Yeah. I mean, they are so psychotic now that I really think if Andy knew they would go up that high, he would have died way before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had these two very successful books. And then you had a third book. Uh, a children's that, book. Yeah. But then you stop writing. And I've read where you are very open about this. You tell interviewers, yeah, you've had writer's block and you haven't been able to write, but you're sure doing a lot of great talking. So is that the trade-off? You don't want to be like closeted away having to write, which anybody who's ever tried knows is really hard. When you've got a lot to say, so you go out and tell people across the country and the world. Yeah, well, because talking is easy. I'm lazy. It's basically <laughs> laziness. I mean, you you never hear anyone say they're lazy anymore, even though there's tons of lazy people. You know, many of them are, you know, Republicans in Congress. I mean, so, like, I would, like I'm lazy. Writing is really hard for me. Mm-hmm. If it's not hard for you, I don't mean you specifically. Or any of you, yeah. Yes. If it's, it's not hard for someone, you know— it's, they're not doing it well. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to do. Some people like to work hard, but yeah. I don't. Yeah. So talking is easy. I don't even think about it. So I took the easy way out. Well, but but you're touring now. and, yeah. well, and The traveling is horrible. The travel, oh, I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, that's not easy. No. Going from town to town, venue to venue. What's that like for you? It's horrible for me because the way that airlines are run, basically. Mm. You know, I mean, I know for a fact, no matter where I am in the world, I am the angriest person in the airport. <laughs> And that is because I don't have a phone. I finally figured it out. Like, why isn't everyone else in a fury? And it's because, except for me, everyone's looking at their phone. So if you're looking at your phone, that's where you are. 
Mm-hmm. It's a geographical thing. It's like, but I'm in the airport where no one wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm always at the counter, and I always have to say, I know it's not your fault. Exactly. Okay? Mm-hmm. But the, whoever's fault it is, you know, they're never here. That's right. Whoever they are, <laughs> where are they? I mean, you know, <laughs> who is it? It's the only people who run the airlines. And I would say, you realize, of course, that no other businesses run like this. None. And there's not a single person in this airport who, if they did their work this way, could afford to fly. Okay? <laughs> who says, you know, mm, we're, we're going to be leaving. Uh, we'll let you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you go to a restaurant, do they say, yes, we're going to open for dinner, but we're not sure when. We're not sure when. <laughs> yeah, just hang around for two or three days, and we'll let you know. You know, so, yeah, the traveling is really horrible. But how, how do you prepare for that trip? Because you are famously known not to have a cell phone not to have a computer. So here you are. You do have, I guess, like uh, maybe a written list telling you you're going to, you know, Dubuque and Boise and Denver. I, I have people go with me. <laughs> yeah. I have like, like people they— People with phones. You've yeah, got a, people you've got with a phone patrol. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> they call themselves tour managers, but a friend of mine calls them your babysitters. <laughs> so, um, yeah, people have to go with me because, of course, I can't do it. And I, I actually— have almost no skills at all. You know, I mean, it's not just I can't travel like this. Um, you know, basically, I can talk. I can write when I can write. Um, I can read, and that's pretty much it. And they actually, like, do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's also people that you can hire at the airport. They're called greeters. They yes. greet you. Yes. They take you. They put you in the car. They tell you, take this out. Take the card out. Take the, you know, do this. Take your shoes out. You know, whatever. I just do whatever they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works out because I get there. You kind of, I know you say you're angry at the airport, but don't you have to kind of put yourself into a bit of a zen-like trance? Like, okay, I go where they tell me to go. I do what they well, tell me to do. Well, I do do that, but do. no, I'm angry. I yeah. mean, first of all, I'm just generally angry. Um, I try not to be because I smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. which uh, now is a terrible thing. Smoking marijuana it turns out now to be a wonderful thing, healthy, no one cares, but the smoking of <laughs> cigarettes is very bad. And so... You know, when you get really angry, you want to smoke because mm-hmm. it, like, relieves your tension. So I try not to get that angry. Um, I had to go to Australia about five years ago. Oh, man, that's a journey. And I'm going again in a few months. And really traveling to me is about smoking, basically, mm-hmm. because when you could smoke on planes and airports, it didn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, look around and I think, well, they don't smoke. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not thinking, what am I going to get out? I know exactly every single place in the United States how long without a cigarette. <laughs> and so when I was going to Australia the first time, I said, no, I'm going to be in a total calm state. I'm not going to look at my watch. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to get a perfect book. I asked someone, what is a book that will last 21 hours and that will be very engrossing? And uh, someone said to me, um, have you ever read The Master Builder about Robert Moses? Uh-huh. Uh, Power Broker. Power Broker. Power Broker. And I said, no. So I did. It's like 8 million pages. Mm-hmm. I had it in one bag. Every time someone met me at a dinner airport and took my bag, it's a small bag, the guy would go, what's in here? <laughs> I would say, a book, a book. But it worked. The book worked. Uh-huh. Um, but actually, that fact that I didn't kill anyone on that flight is my greatest accomplishment. I, I congratulate you. And, <laughs> and I hope you keep that record going when you go to Australia the but next I mean, time. Like lots of times when you read about people fighting on airplanes, uh-huh. I always think they smoke. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, for sure they drink. Yes. Okay, so I don't drink. So, mm-hmm. like, that's probably why I don't kill people. Do <laughs> so you bring one big fat book with you on, when you're touring? No, just to, that was just to, for that uh, L.A. to Melbourne trip. Oh, that's a long. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I bring a lot of books with me, um, even though everyone says, you know, if you had a computer, all the books could be on the computer. I can't do that, though, Fran. I have to no. have books. I mean, people say the same thing to me. I have a book bag on every flight I take. Yeah, but running out of books on a plane is... 
really a, mu- a much bigger fear of mine Nightmare. than the plane's going to crash. I'm not worried about the plane crashing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but I am worried, like, because I once ran out of books on a plane, and it was a long time. It was so long ago, they had magazines on the planes. They yeah, don't have I remember anymore. those days. Yeah. And I ran out of books, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I, I asked, do you have any magazines? We just have this one. That's how I discovered there was a magazine called Golf Magazine, which is a magazine <laughs> about golf, okay, which is like, okay, it's better than no magazine, uh-huh. but not much. <laughs> and I actually walk up and down the aisles asking people, do you have a book you're not reading? Do, do you have a book you might finish? You might have finished, you know, because there are more, used to be more people reading books on planes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than there are now. I've, I've been there, done that. I mean, it, yeah, I got to have a book. So now, the way I understand your tour, you pick somebody— to interview you. Yeah, well, I don't always pick them. I mean, I pick them in places where I know people. Right. You know, I'm, I'm going to Fayette. I mean, I did this already. I was going to Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah. They said, who would you like to interview you? I said, choose someone. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anyone in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Right, right. You know, usually it's a journalist, you know. But as I'm sure you know, many places, there's no newspapers anymore. That's so right. there are no local journalists, That's really. That's right. Um, but usually it's journalists. That's usually a best choice because, mm-hmm. despite what most people think, interviewing someone's a skill. It is. Okay? Like, I don't have it myself. So interviewing someone is a skill, um, and they're the better people at it, usually. I do the, the interview uh, for half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, that person leaves uh, the stage, and I go to a podium, and I ask her questions from the audience for one hour. This is my favorite activity on the planet Earth other than reading. How's it set up? Just uh, I just stand at a podium, yeah, and house lights go up, and people raise their hand, and no microphone. They yell your, they yell the question. Well, I don't allow microphones in the audience, and this is a constant fight between me and my agent, or me mm-hmm. and the venues, you know, because mm-hmm. they say people can't hear, mm-hmm. and I say it doesn't matter. I sometimes can't hear the people. Repeat the question, mm-hmm. somewhat, mm-hmm. you know, because if you have microphones in the audience, you don't get questions from the audience. You get answers from the mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to make a speech, so go make a speech. But mm-hmm. not here. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't allow the microphone. That's so interesting because, you know, I'm teaching at Columbia now. I'm teen teaching. And so we teach for 70 minutes and then we do questions at the end for 20 minutes. But we do. We have a microphone in the center aisle and we, you know, try to keep it moving along. But there's always the risk somebody's going to, like, hold the microphone hostage. You know, they're going to. Uh, but you're teaching law, right? Uh, no, we're te- I'm teaching uh, a course on foreign policy decision making called Inside the Situation Room. Yeah. Well, you should be in Washington teaching this. Yeah, not, uh... I, well, yeah, yeah or, or somewhere, <laughs> yeah. you know, honestly. So you've done something recently, you know, within the last, you know, year, two or three, which I think is pretty gutsy also, and that was making a documentary. And you made it with one of the greatest filmmakers in— Well, I didn't make it. Marty made it. Marty Scorsese made it, but you were an active participant because it was about you. Yeah, well, it was, you know, Marty made a movie about me mm-hmm. about 10 years before for HBO mm-hmm. uh, called Public Speaking. And when he said he wanted to do this, I said no. I always said no to documentaries about me mm-hmm. because I don't want anyone following me around. Yeah. Um, and so, but with Marty, you know, I know Marty. I said, well, it, it can't be about me, Marty, about my life. I just want it to be about what I think. And so that's what it was. Yeah. But you could only do that, first of all. First of all, when people say, what's it like to collaborate with Scorsese? I would have no idea. I'm not a collaborator with the greatest living American <laughs> filmmaker. I, I don't know at all. But, you know, I have a great rapport with Marty. So, you know, basically that is mostly um, just me talking to Marty. There's other stuff. I mean, I think there's Tony Morrison. You know, there's other people. But it's basically talking. Yeah. And then he wanted to do another one right away. And I said no. 
And then this thing for, uh, with Netflix came. And I said, I could do it, but let's just do it about New York. I'm just going to walk around New York and talk about New York. Marty goes, great, I'm going to walk with you. I said, don't be ridiculous. Because as I'm sure you know, almost all famous people say they hate to get recognized, but they're all lying. But Marty hates it. Yeah. He really hates it. So I said, you cannot walk around with me, Marty. I said, because we're not going to be able to walk more than one step in mm-hmm. New York. I mean, Marty, you can't do it. So the one day that Marty uh, came was actually visible uh, during the filming in the street. Within two minutes, he's hiding inside of a building. Um, so I said, <laughs> you, you can't do that, Marty. It's oh. not going to work out. And, and you know, for again, for our listeners, it's got this really evocative title, Pretend It's a City, where did that come from? That's my title, okay? So I'm not, I don't make contributions to Marty Scorsese's, you know, work, Mm -hmm. but that was my title because, you know, for I don't know how many years, it's been now like 30 or 25 years where there's been so many tourists in New York. Yeah. You know, the year before COVID, I see in the paper, you know, last year, 58 million tourists came to New York. So there's already 9 million people here. Yeah. Okay, it's crowded. You know, don't come. (laughs) Go somewhere else. And these tourists drive me crazy for numerous reasons, one of which is that they have nowhere really they have to go. Oh, yeah. So what they don't realize is that in New York, walking is a form of transportation. It is. Okay? That's how we get a lot of places, mm-hmm. okay? It's also the most reliable. Mm-hmm. And also many times the fastest. Mm-hmm. So, but they don't do that. They, first of all, there's a lot of them together. You know, I mean, there could be like five people together, which you never seen New Yorkers do because that's too sociable. You got to get somewhere. And they stop. They just stand in the middle of the sidewalk. And I am constantly getting in fights with these people. But when it fights, I mean, I yell at them, you know, <laughs> please move, please move, nothing. And so I started yelling like about 10 years ago, <laughs> move, pretend it's a city. It's not your living room. It's not your backyard. You know, people have to get some places. That's where pretend to see it came from. That is great. Well, you you also mentioned Toni Morrison, such an extraordinary human being as well as just a a great writer. How did you meet her? How, How did you become friends with her? You know, actually, people ask me a lot, where did you and Marty meet? And neither one of us know. Uh-huh. Okay, but Tony, I not only remember where, I remember exactly when, mm. um, because the, my experience with Tony, uh, this would happen. There used to be, or perhaps still is something called the American Society of Poets. And they sent me a letter, and it said, you know, we have a reading series at the McDonald Library. Would you like to read in the series? This is my name. Here's my phone number. So I called on the telephone, uh, the man, uh, and uh, he said, would you like to read in the I said, yes, I would like to. He said, we always have uh, two people reading together. Do you know who Toni Morrison is? She wasn't that well-known then. So I said, yes. He said, do you like her work? I said, I love her work. He said, would you like to read together with her? I said, no. He said, why not? I said, it's too weird. It's a, it's a bizarre combination. It doesn't make sense to me as a combination. <clears throat> he said, do you object to it? I said, no. But he said, well, we think it's a good combination. So we read together. And and it was a great combination. I don't know why. As soon as it was over, Tony said, this is a great combination. Let's go on the road. So we did not actually go on the road, but I became friends with her instantly in a way that that's not usually how friendship works. That's mm-hmm. like maybe like a love affair, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, love affairs don't have to last. Um, and, and so I know exactly when it was. It was 1978. Oh, God, I love that story. And uh, yes, it's true. I mean, Tony was a great writer. Everyone knows she's a great writer. But she was also 
I mean, I've known lots and lots of uh, very smart people, but she is the only wise person I've ever known. Oh, so I, the lack of, and oh, not just my life, in the world, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people died. I miss a lot of people, but not like Tony. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, for people who weren't privileged like you and I were to have met her and like you to be a friend of hers, just Google her and look at that picture of that amazing face and the way that she just had a presence and anything you can ever see of her speaking, giving any kind of address, doing anything. But read her books. Read her books. Yes, and read them in order. Okay, that's if you've a good never point. that's like, a here's good my, point. Not that you asked, or not that anyone has asked, but my advice to people when they've never read a writer before, I mean a good writer, or in the case of a great writer, read the writer in order if yes. you've never read them before. Because then you see how they change. Mm-hmm. You know. And so I mean, I can't say I wish I'd never read Tony, but it'd be a pretty thrilling thing to come to it new. Yes, it you know? would be. And to start from the beginning. Yeah, start from the beginning. Well, you know, when I think about Pretend as a City, I think about how consistent you've been in really defending the culture of the city, the feeling of the city. And, you know, I've I've heard you speak with great regret about what you think has happened to New York City over time. And, you know, the role of so-called gentrification and pushing people out. If you had the proverbial magic wand, what would you tell or make you know, leaders, you know, not just mayors, governors, presidents, but also the business uh, leadership here in this. What would you have them do to try to restore the spirit of this city that you love and deserves everybody's love and attention? Pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. But which I mean is rich people pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. Pay your taxes. You know, this whole thing about this kind of gigantic philanthropy, you know, giving like a zillion dollars and you're going to name this museum after me and I get the, you know, that kind of philanthropy is unpaid taxes. That's all it is. If you have a job, like a regular job where you get paid every week or two weeks, whatever, the taxes come out of your Mm -hmm. pay. So they pay their taxes, Mm -hmm. okay? They pay, you know, a significant percentage of their income in taxes. And so I don't want to know, like, you know, when I hear some, like, you know, zillionaire say, I paid, you know, $40 million in taxes. Not enough. Mm-hmm. It's not a big enough percentage of the money that you made. Mm-hmm. Also, not that anyone asked me, I didn't even know when I was young that taxes were higher on earned income yes. than on uh, passive income. Mm-hmm. First of all, what does passive income mean? It means you're not doing anything. Right. Your money is making money. Yeah, yeah. your money is making money. And um, I'm not a communist. I'm not saying we shouldn't have capitalism. I'm saying we should have more fairness. It's really unfair. It is you know, unfair. It is really unfair. And it would solve a lot of problems. Whenever people say, well, there aren't enough rich people. There are enough here. Yeah. I mean, one yeah. thing is that New York does not lack for rich people. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hold up. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Where were you during COVID? Did, were you in your apartment? Yes, for an entire year. For one year. Yes, yeah. during which time I had zero income. So, like, no money that my government put $1,200 into my bank account, which was nice, but huh, for a year. Um, yeah. And I had never, I mean, a lot. most people, I guess, didn't know COVID was coming, but I had never thought about it. No. I had never thought, what if there's a plague? Yeah. I mean, it turned happen? out that's what a lot of people had because there's a lot of people read science fiction or they watch science fiction, and it's apparently a common theme of science fiction. So I couldn't think about it. I, I didn't know how to think about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, now I do. Well, you were home with your, what, 10,000 books? I was home with my books. I, I mean— the worst thing about COVID, I mean, for me, obviously the worst thing about COVID is people died or got really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second worst thing is Fran, there were no bookstores open. So I buy books by, I go in a bookstore, I open a book, I read like a page or two, or sometimes less, and I go, mm, no, or mm-hmm. yes. Sometimes I'm wrong, but not usually. But because the bookstores were closed, I had to borrow a friend's Amazon account. I paid her back. And the only way I knew about books what new books there were was either reviews or people recommended them to me. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible way. To yeah, you don't have book. that firsthand experience. No, are you kidding? I now have about 120 books in my apartment that I never would have bought in a million years. Well, you should give them away. Give I, yes, I spent a lot of time thinking. It's like when my father died. I was in my, my father was in the last generation of men who, when he died, you had a hundred ties, neckties. Together. Yes. Like so, I spent like a year like thinking, <laughs> who should have this tie of my father's? So <laughs> now I'm spending like another year going. Who would like this book? Yeah. So my father had a lot nicer ties than I have books I don't want. So, <laughs> Oh, gosh, Fran. I, I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. I'm going to end with a uh, future-oriented uh, question. Is there anything you really want to do or something that if it came across your path, you'd jump on doing? Well, I would like to be the mayor. Well, why don't you run? I couldn't win this room. I'm sure. I couldn't, I couldn't win. I would like to be the mayor because we have horrible mayors. You know, I mean, uh, I've lived here 50 years. There's been two mayors that I thought were good. Uh, in 50 years, not enough. Okay, not enough. All right, so it's a really great job, and it's the second hardest job in New York. Yeah. I mean, it, in, the, in, the, in, in the country, States, certainly. No yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. And the mayor of New York, one thing, since I just am our present mayor, someone I really don't like, I don't know if you know this, he went last week to Mexico City. I thought, if you're the mayor of New York, do not leave New York until everything is fine here. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if you want to take a tropical vacation, I don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to see why people immigrate. You know what? Call me. I'll tell you why. Okay? <laughs> Ten cents or whatever it costs to make a phone call now. Give me a call. I'm going to tell you. 
and don't get on a plane and charge us to New Yorkers. Yeah. I mean, this city deserves so much love and attention and support and leadership and all the rest of it. So, you know, I've run for a few things. If you decide to run, give me a call. <laughs> I definitely will give you a call. <laughs> Thank you, Fran. What a joy. I Thank really, you. really it was appreciate a, it. It was a pleasure yeah. and honor. For me, too. Thank you. For information on where you can see Fran in person while she's on her speaking tour, go to franlebowitz.com. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeart Podcasts. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Rob Russo, with help from Huma Abedin, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Sarah Horowitz, Laura Olin, Lona Valmoro, and Lily Weber. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and the original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like you and me both, tell someone else about it. And if you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.